She's got a picture from Jacob and Ashley. They're so cute. All right. <laughs> Cell phones off, please. <laughs> Get it? It's kind of like a tongue-in-cheek thing. So how was your Christmas? Good, I hope? Mine was filled with fun and coffee. Many coffee-related items that I won't bore you with. And this really cool vintage tie. Is this the coolest thing? You can't tell, but this is an old, I mean vintage, I mean this is like eBay. You know, this is like one of those ties from the 70s that has like enough material in it to make a suit out of it and stuff. <laughs> anyway, very excited about that. Today we start a study through the book of Acts. You can turn there, please. The book of Acts in the New Testament. The overall title of our messages will be The Rest of the Story, Studies in the Book of Acts. Quote I ran across by Vince, or excuse me, Vance Havner, while you're finding your place. Vance Havner wrote and he said, we will move the world not by criticism of it, nor conformity to it, but by combustion within it of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. May that thought direct our attention this morning. Our text will be Acts chapter one, verses one through eight. The topic, Luke writes a sequel to his gospel to describe the ongoing work of Jesus Christ through his disciples. The title of our message, Jesus Christ Sequel Star. Thank you, thank you. Acts chapter one, verse one. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For truly John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Let's pray together. Lord, the book of Acts is uh, it's an exciting historical narrative. We don't want to study it as history. We want to study it, Lord, as directing us into what you would have us to do, who you would have us to be, how you would empower us to witness. Every week, Lord, I pray that you would be our focus, our thoughts would be drawn, Lord, to your love for us, your power poured out upon us, and the desire that you have that we would be your witnesses to all the world. Accomplish many things in this study. May it change us, Lord so that we can bring change 
to the atmospheres and environments in which we find ourselves, to the people, Lord, that you've called us to minister to, at home, at work, wherever we find ourselves. Use this book, inspired by the Spirit, and now with your Holy Spirit, Lord, taught to us to make a difference in our lives and the lives of everyone else we encounter. We pray in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. The book we're about to study originally had no title. The author called it an account in verse one. The uh, the word is translated treatise in the King James Version. In the early days of the church, it was variously called the Acts, the Gospel of the Holy Ghost, and the Gospel of the Resurrection. Most modern Bibles title it the Acts of the Apostles. Many contemporary Bible teachers like to call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit or the acts of the Holy Spirit through the disciples. Does it really matter what we title an untitled account? It only matters in terms of our focus. If we think of the book as the acts of the apostles, then our focus will be on the apostles. Interestingly, the book contains no accounts of any of the apostles other than Peter and Paul. John is noted only three times, and all that is recorded of James is that he was beheaded by Herod. If we think of the book as the acts of the Holy Spirit, or as the acts of the Holy Spirit through the disciples, then obviously our focus will be on the Holy Spirit. We should have a problem with that because Scripture indicates that the Holy Spirit's ministry is to always focus attention on Jesus, Never on himself, certainly not on us as disciples. Jesus gave the book its focus when in verse eight he said, you shall be witnesses to me. Our real focus ought to be Jesus himself. He is the one that the Holy Spirit wants the world to see and know. The book is about him. We might want to call it the continuing acts of Jesus Christ on earth until his second coming or as I have suggested humbly, Jesus Christ's sequel star. I I really like that. In our teachings, I will refer to this book as the book of Acts or simply Acts. As the book opens, we'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, Jesus has provided you the directions to be witnesses. And number two, Jesus has promised you the dynamic to be witnesses. First of all, in verses one through three, Jesus has provided you the directions to be witnesses. Now, one thing I'm going to stress throughout our studies is this. Acts is meant to stir you up as a Christian. There are many wonderful things in the book of Acts, lots of great history, uh, you know, lots of great biography, uh, wonderful doctrine, and, and all of these different things that we will glean from it, but it is really to stir you up as a Christian. It tells the story of how a small group of believers were empowered by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses of Jesus and turn the whole world upside down for the Lord. What happened in them and through them is to continue in you and through you until the Lord returns in his second coming to earth. And so though we're reading about what happened in the first century, it is what God desires to happen in every subsequent century in general until the return of his son, Jesus Christ, this witnessing to him that is so dramatic and so powerful that it changes lives. And so in verse one, 
The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. The former account written to Theophilus is the Gospel of Luke. Theophilus is believed to have been a wealthy Roman official who converted to Jesus Christ and was born again, and then he wanted to know more about Jesus and the things that he believed. It's interesting, I remember when I was first a Christian, there was a little book by Paul Little. It was titled, Know What You Believe. I always thought that was fascinating. You come to faith in Jesus Christ, believing on him to save you from your sins, that he is your savior, risen from the dead. But you really don't know what you believe, do you? And then you begin to read the Bible, study the Bible, hear the Bible taught at a good church, and and the Lord brings you the knowledge of what you believe about Jesus Christ. And and so this is Theophilus' situation. He's a Christian. He wants to know, what what is it that I believe? How did we get from Jesus to where we are now? It was about 60 or 62 AD by the time that this book was written. What happened from the time Jesus was uh, crucified, rose from the dead and ascended up until the time Theophilus becomes a Christian to bring uh, the Christian movement to that point? Luke is often a character in the book of Acts. You'll see him as a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul's on his missionary journeys. We know that because we'll be reading through the book of Acts and all of a sudden you'll encounter the pronoun we and the author puts himself in the narrative. And if you look at all of those passages, it can only be Luke or Titus that is writing this book and there's no evidence that it was Titus uh, and there's a, a great deal of historical and personal evidence that it was Luke, the beloved physician. I was talking to Dennis Davenport, uh, my friend from Calvary Chapel of the High Desert, and, and I don't know why we got on this, but he said, man, wouldn't it have been cool if you were Paul to have a doctor traveling with you? I mean, if you're Paul the Apostle, you need some medical attention from time to time. <laughs> People are stoning you to death, they're tearing your limb from limbs. It'd be kind of cool to have a doctor on, uh, on the missions trip. And I know any missions trip, I, you know, missions trips, they're always tenuous. You trust the Lord, but, uh, you know, you don't want to get sick. And it's always nice to have a doctor or a nurse along with you and a suitcase full of antibiotics. But uh, so Luke is the physician. He's writing it, and he considered the gospel he wrote merely an introduction. Now, we spent 80 weeks in the gospel of Luke, if you'll recall, and I believed it was a tremendous uh, just study through the gospel. But he said, this is just the beginning. This is what Jesus began to do. And now he's going to tell us what continues to happen. Jesus had done and taught his disciples many things prior to his death and resurrection. And then he gave them further directions after his resurrection. In verse 2, until the day in which he was taken up after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. You remember from the Gospel of Luke and the other Gospels that Jesus continued to appear to his disciples on and off without warning for a period of 40 days after he rose bodily from the grave. In those appearances, Luke says he gave them many infallible proofs that he was raised and that he was real. He invited them to touch him. He cooked for them and made meals for them and ate with them. The resurrection of Jesus is one of the most provable events in human history. 
It's certainly not something invented as a footnote or an afterthought. Uh, If you follow and apply all the rules of law and logic, it is really infallible that the Lord rose from the dead. People who don't believe that Jesus rose physically and bodily from the dead do so because they do not want to confront their own sin, not because they don't want to listen to the facts. Now, do you ever wonder why Jesus came and went suddenly? Disciples would be meeting and then Jesus would be in their midst. Just from a corporate standpoint, it would seem like he would get more done if he just hung around with them for 40 days. I mean, he was gonna send, these were the guys. He was gonna send them on this mission. You'd think they'd go to a retreat center somewhere and just really, you know, get the vision and get the mission, but instead he comes and goes. He was teaching them something and he's teaching us something through that. Our resurrected Lord, though he would be physically absent from the earth, would be spiritually omnipresent with us. When he popped in on the disciples, he always knew what they had been thinking and what they had been talking about. He would suddenly appear right in the middle of everything that was going on, giving them the understanding that he had been with them even though they didn't see him. And isn't that a comfort to you, to know that the Lord who has ascended into heaven, who will return one day physically and bodily, nonetheless is spiritually present with you, omnipresent. He said he would never, no, never, not ever leave you or forsake you. And certainly that is through the indwelling of the Spirit, but it's also his presence as well in the sense that uh, he's providing here. And so we're thankful for the Lord showing us that. Now during those 40 days, Jesus through the Holy Spirit had given commandments, it says. Among the things Jesus commanded, we know, was what we call the Great Commission. It's at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. You're familiar with it. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." The book of Acts is going to show you how the apostles he had chosen were enabled by the Holy Spirit to fulfill that commission. It is going to show us how we are to go on fulfilling it until the Lord returns for us because it was the beginning of what Jesus taught and did and and we're to continue that same work. Now Jesus also, it says, spoke of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. The Jews had been promised a literal kingdom of God on the earth. But when Jesus was crucified, they rejected their king and the literal kingdom would be delayed. Acts fills the gap and reveals what is happening during that delay. Jesus is building his church. Something that was a mystery not revealed in the Old Testament, but revealed to us in the New Testament. And and, and think of it. You're Theophilus. You... You know, how do you get from Jesus Christ risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, leaving a small group of Jewish believers 30 years later in around 60 or 62 AD, churches all over Asia? What is a church? What is a pastor? Who are the elders? What do you mean deacon? Where did all that come from? We don't make the connection, but it's really, if you don't have the book of Acts, 
If you go right from the Gospels to Romans, you're lost. How, how do you bridge that? How do you get there? This is how you get there. You read about it in the book of Acts as Jesus now unveils his program during the delay of the kingdom. The Lord was risen. The disciples were commissioned to go. It's the same today. Only you are the disciples who are to be witnesses and you are the ones receiving these directions. But don't go just yet. There's something we need in order to be witnesses. In verses four through eight, Jesus has promised you the dynamic to be witnesses. All of the direction in the world, even coming directly from Jesus, could not enable the disciples to be witnesses. They required what he called the baptism with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is mentioned more than 50 times in the book of Acts. Again, not to focus on him, but to let us know that in order to be witnesses to Jesus, we're going to need this experience. We're gonna see how he works in and through disciples and churches to enable them to be witnesses to Jesus. And so in verse four, being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. Before he was crucified, in the upper room, Jesus told the disciples that he was leaving for heaven and he was gonna prepare a place for them He'd return for them that where he was, they would be. In the meantime, he said, I'm gonna be gone, but I'll send you another comforter. And there in John 14, he was referring to God, the Holy Spirit, and he said, the Holy Spirit will be with you and he shall be in you. Now, the Holy Spirit had been with them throughout the Lord's ministry on the earth. After Jesus rose from the dead, in one of his post-resurrection pop-ins, he breathed on them, and the scripture says the Holy Spirit was in them. And so Jesus says the Holy Spirit's been with you, he'll be in you. He rises from the dead, comes to them, breathes on them, and says now the Holy Spirit is in you. We would say they were born again at that moment. They were believers the whole time. But at that moment, they experienced this born-again experience, this New Testament experience of having the Holy Spirit permanently indwell you. Now Jesus tells them, these born-again men, to wait for something more, something further, some additional relationship with the Holy Spirit. He calls it the baptism with the Spirit, but he also calls it the promise of the Father. Now, since we know Luke wrote Acts, we can refer back to his gospel and see if there's any connection with some of these phrases. And this phrase, the promise of the Father, reminds us of a passage in Luke chapter 11 where he wrote, Jesus speaking, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? And then Jesus says, if you then being evil, compared to God, comparatively speaking, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And this is Luke's reference to the promise of the Father. Jesus says it's the baptism with the Spirit. Earlier Luke said it was something the Father would give his children if they were to ask for it. If God is your Father, you're already saved. The Holy Spirit is with you and He is in you, but there is still another experience with the Holy Spirit that you are to ask for, 
and your father will give it to you. Now these men were saved, they were indwelt by the Holy Spirit, whatever Jesus was talking about was something more. And the first thing he does is compare it to John the Baptist's baptizing people with water to give you an idea of just how enormous it was. He says in verse five, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now in John's baptism, you went down to the water and you were immersed in the Jordan River. And this is kind of the image that Jesus is drawing, only he's saying spirit baptism is like being immersed in the Holy Spirit. It sounds a little bit mystical, uh, but, but the idea is that it, it's something that over, you know, comes over you, it comes upon you. Billy Graham likes to say it's not whether or not you have the Spirit, but does the Spirit have you? It's that kind of a thing. And so Jesus says there's this promise of the Father, it's the baptism with the Holy Spirit. It's gonna be something like a spiritual baptism in the sense that you're not going underwater, but you're coming under the influence of the Holy Spirit in a new way. In verse six, therefore when they had come together, they asked him saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, I have to say, if Jesus had just told me I was going to be baptized with the Spirit, I'd ask questions about that, wouldn't you? Instead, hey, what about the uh, kingdom, Lord? And we've talked about this before. These guys were just tunnel vision on the kingdom of God because of all the ways that they had grown up and been influenced. But we don't wanna be too hard on these guys because Christians today, even with the Bible completed, still don't understand God's prophetic plan. I could name you any number of well-known Christians who have decided God has no further plan for the nation of Israel. Everything happening in the Middle East has nothing to do with Bible prophecy as far as they're concerned. Anything God promised Israel now, it belongs to the church. Sometimes some of you who do reading, you'll read some of these guys who wrote 100 years ago or even currently, and they'll talk about the church in the Old Testament, meaning the nation of Israel. Israel is not the church, the church is not Israel. There is a great deal of confusion among Christians about the kingdom of God. I understand why there would be. I'm always telling you how, how really, you know, it, it takes a great deal of confidence to read the scripture up until 1948 and declare that Israel is going to be a nation again in their own homeland, especially, can you imagine saying that during World War II? while Hitler was busy exterminating the Jewish race, get up on Sunday morning and say, well, yeah, but we know that Israel is gonna be a nation again. Took a great deal of courage. There were men doing that. H.A. Ironside was among them, great Bible commentator, because he's just reading the scripture and saying this is what God has promised. And so there's a lot of confusion even today. And so we, we cut these guys some slack. They had grown up believing that the Messiah would come and establish the kingdom. What better time to do it, they thought, than right now, now that we have a risen man, a man who rose from the dead. And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Before his crucifixion, Jesus told his disciples they would be able to discern general signs of the times regarding his return, but they wouldn't know the exact date. The book of Acts is going to show you, as I said, what is happening on the earth from the ascension of Jesus to heaven. 
until his return from there to establish the kingdom that was promised. There is this gap now some 2,000 years long that the disciples didn't understand, but they come to understand it as they go forward ministering. As the New Testament letters are written, you're gonna learn that Jesus can return at any moment to resurrect the dead and rapture the living. You're told about the great tribulation that is coming upon the earth. You see Jesus returning in his second coming after the seven years of the tribulation to establish his kingdom. All of this is in miniature in Jesus' topic or comments. It's not for you to know the exact timing. But as things unfold, the Bible is a progressive revelation the disciples come to a greater and greater understanding of these things. So his words to his disciples in verse seven are meant to inspire them, I believe, to a sense of urgency in their commission, not to a sense of relaxation. Jesus isn't saying, hey, don't worry about the kingdom. It might not come for thousands of years. Go back, be a fisherman, have a fun time fishing. He's saying, look, you'll know there are signs. Don't worry about the exact time, go out, make disciples, bring citizens into the kingdom because I am coming back. They were to be witnesses, but first, in verse eight, he said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. On a technical note, this verse gives you Jesus' outline for the book of Acts. So if you're ever gonna outline the book of Acts, you're gonna study the book of Acts, this is Jesus' outline. I don't think it can be improved upon. You'll see that they receive power in chapter two, and then they are witnesses to Jerusalem in chapters three through seven, to Judea and Samaria in chapters eight through 12, and then to the end of the earth from chapter 13 to the end of the book and continuing through church history. So that's the outline for the book of Acts. Very logical, very orderly, giving Theophilus and anyone else who reads it an understanding of how we got from the ascension of Jesus Christ to the church age and how that's going to unfold. The baptism with the Holy Spirit. It's just one of those things Christians argue about. And many of you know this. Some say that it's synonymous with being born again. You're born again and you're baptized with the Spirit or by the Spirit into the body of Christ. And you should expect no further relationship with or experience with the Holy Spirit. Others say that it has to do with the receiving of certain spiritual gifts, especially, it seems, the gift of speaking in tongues. And if you go to their churches and their meetings, they're always wanting you to speak in tongues to prove that you have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, quite honestly, it is because of this warfare between different camps of Christians that we miss just the simplicity of this. And I understand that. I mean, if you've got one guy over here saying, hey, the baptism of the Spirit is this crazy thing that happens to you where you just totally kind of go to jelly and you start speaking in tongues. And then you know you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. And, and what it fosters, many of you have told me these stories and they're true, what it fosters is, okay, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm sincere, I want to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So you come forward, they lay hands on you. You don't seem to be speaking in tongues. You want to. And so finally somebody comes and they says, hey, here's a word, 
Here's a phrase. Start repeating this to set your tongue free. Say she rode a Honda really fast 10 times. She rode a Honda, she rode a Honda, she rode a Honda. Oh, I've got it. I've got the gift of tongues. Now I know I've been baptized with the Spirit. Now I don't mean to make fun of it, but think about it. If this is a gift promised you by the Father and is given to you, how is it that you bring it upon yourself by repeating some catchphrase? That's phony, that's not real. And it promotes this idea that the baptism with the Spirit has to do with with spiritual gifts and, and with all of this kind of behavior. And so I think quite honestly what happens is the conservative scholars, they react to that and they say, hey, we don't, we don't want to be whacked out like that. That's crazy. And so maybe there is no baptism with the Holy Spirit. We don't see any middle ground and so therefore, hmm, maybe it's just being put into the body of Christ. And, and then there's this argument back and forth. It's sad really. Now, as we make progress in Acts, I want you to see that the baptism with the Holy Spirit is not at all about receiving certain spiritual gifts. And I hope you will come to understand that while it may occur simultaneously with being born again, it is nevertheless a separate and essential experience and relationship that you can have with the Holy Spirit. In order for us to see this, we're going to have to set aside our biases and preconceptions that we have about the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And the first thing to do is to admit that you have them. All of us have biases and preconceptions, especially if we have any church background at all. We believe what we've been taught. I remember when I did, uh, years ago, I was at the kids' school, one of the Christian schools, and I was doing a devotion. I asked the kids, they were like in the second grade or third grade, second grade. And I said, hey, what'd you guys do this weekend? And this one little girl said she had gone to the Benny Hinn crusade in Bakersfield. And I go, really, what happened there? And she goes, I was slain in the spirit there. Oh, really, what happened? Oh, the man came over and I fell down. Now, if you are being slain in the spirit from the time you're in the second grade, by the time you're an adult, you believe that that's a real experience that is promised to you in the Bible, and when somebody like me comes along and says, you know, the only people who were slain in the spirit were Ananias and Sapphira. (laughs) And they were killed by the spirit for lying to God. I mean, you have a a mental disconnect because everything that you've been taught and believed is is not true. And, And it's very hard for us to give up our biases. Most of us have conservative biases. We don't really come from Pentecostal backgrounds, we come from more conservative. And we hear this and we hear somebody saying, you're saying I'm not really a Christian because I don't have the Holy Spirit. No, no one's saying that. We're saying that the Holy Spirit is with you and in you, but God himself said you could have an upon experience and that if you'd ask for it, he would grant it. And so we need to just say, what do the scriptures say? And thus far we've seen that this is an experience promised to born again believers. Those who have the Holy Spirit with them and in them, have him come upon them. And we'll see all of this as Luke's account unfolds because it is this which makes a believer empowered to be a witness. Now this is the real issue. Jesus said you would be witnesses to him everywhere. There's a difference between what we commonly call witnessing and being a witness. You can witness about Jesus be telling the absolute scriptural truth 
but have nothing going on in your own life that verifies that it actually works. And this is the state many of us find ourselves in. Being a witness means there is an undeniable change in how you live that cannot be explained naturally. For the most part, this isn't always true, but there are many occasions in the book of Acts where people seek out the disciples and say, what is going on with you? What's happening here? This is, this is supernatural. These guys, you have to understand as we get into it, they had no plan for witnessing or spreading the gospel. Even directed by Jesus, they didn't know what they were doing at all. And people would come to them and say, you've got to come over here because we see something happening in your life. Jesus said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What if we, to make application of this, said something like this, you shall be witnesses to me in your marriage, in your home, at your place of employment, in your school, in your neighborhood. And then we would have to confront all of us Am I a witness, am I being a witness in those places the way these first century guys were being witnesses? And then regardless what I believe about the baptism with the Holy Spirit, whether I think it's gonna make me fall down and feel crazy, or whether I believe that it doesn't exist, that's the real issue. Jesus said there's something absolutely necessary and essential for you to be witnesses. And we see it, and we see the result of it, And he wants us to go on seeing the result of it until his coming. If I lack this dynamic power Jesus spoke of, why argue that it doesn't exist? Why argue? Uh, You know, talk to, I don't believe in it. I I think I've got everything I got. Okay, how's your marriage? Uh, We're headed for divorce. So really, there's no witness in your marriage, is there? No. How are you a witness then? How, how is the Holy Spirit making a difference in your life, in your family, where you live? This is what we want to talk about in the book of Acts. We'll develop the doctrine of the baptism with the Holy Spirit so that we can talk about it rationally and all that, but we don't want to lose sight of the experience itself. And I think a lot of people don't experience it because they don't believe that it's experienceable. And it's a stupid sentence, I know, but that's, that's the bottom line. You're not going to ask for something you don't believe exists. And if you ask for something and you have a preconceived idea of what it's going to do to you, it's going to give you the gift of tongues or, or cause you to be able to stand up in a meeting of Christians and draw attention to yourself, you're not going to get it either. And so what is it for? It's to be witnesses. It is to have a supernatural presence of Jesus Christ in your life, to live the Christian life in such a way that you are undeniably changed. It is to serve the Lord. Now the disciples were told to wait for the baptism with the Spirit. That was because it was gonna be given on the day of Pentecost for the first time in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. We don't need to wait. It's available to appropriate by faith right now. If you ask and nothing seems to happen, in his gospel, Luke said you go on asking and believing that the Father gives you the Holy Spirit. The Lord will give you what he's promised. Why wouldn't you receive it immediately? 
Again, I really believe that for one thing, you'd be surprised how entrenched our biases and preconceptions are about it. I was praying about this this morning. It's always, there's a little bit of a difficulty with me in teaching on this because I always think it should eventuate in, okay, let's all raise our hand and receive it. The truth is, who wouldn't raise their hand and say, yeah, I want it? And, and, you know, and I'm asking you to you know, pray about it. Say, Lord, you said this is available. I want that. But I also understand that sometimes the Lord has to work in and on our hearts to bring us to a point where we really understand that what we're asking for is possible and it's not what we think it is. It's what he wants it to be. And so our study through, as, as we go through Acts, I'm hoping that any of us who have never really been baptized with the Holy Spirit will begin to experience something new and powerful in our lives by exposure to the scripture and by the understanding that, Lord, you're writing about me here. I, I could have been Peter. I could have been these guys because these are just normal people. I could have been Stephen, Philip. These, these, these are not special people. They're not extraordinary people. They're ordinary people who came to faith in Jesus Christ and then by faith received his spirit to be witnesses. We all need this. May God grant us this revival in our midst. Amen. Father, we do thank you and I pray for each of us individually, Lord, that we would take these things to heart and spend some time with you, alone with you, waiting upon you. Not that... The waiting is necessary, but it, it seems, Lord, that there are some things that uh, need to be undone in our thinking. These first century disciples, Lord, they, they took you at your word. They believed you. They didn't have any real history like we do. They, they weren't taught erroneous things. They weren't taught to be afraid of certain things. They didn't have the biases that we have. And as we come to this book, Lord, the more that we struggle, the more that we would just look at ourselves and say, Lord, am I your witness? And if, if I'm not the witness I, I, you want me to be at home or at work or at school or anywhere else, then Lord, I ask you for this, for this outpouring of your spirit. Your spirit is with me. He's in me. I want him upon me. I want it to be as if I'm baptized in him, just immersed in him so that there is a joy and, and that there is a, a drawing to you, Lord, through my life. That people would look at our lives and, and desire something there and know that it can only come through a relationship with the living God. Just encourage us all this morning, just in this quiet moment, maybe you are ready to just ask the Lord to baptize you with his spirit. Just do that as we close this morning. Just pray and say, Lord, baptize me with your spirit. And then let me walk by faith, believing that I've received it because you are my heavenly Father and you would not withhold anything that I ask. And then may you see the Lord do wonderful and mighty things through your life this week. Thank you, Lord. Amen. All right, let's stand together. Some of the guys will be here to pray with you after the service. If there's something going on in your life that you think prayer would help, please come forward. We also, if you're uh, new to the church or you've uh, never received one of our welcome packets, we have those down here 
lots of great information. Uh, cafe is open during or after service. It'll be open during the week this week. Wednesday morning, the men get together. Wednesday night, Bible study. It's good to be together. Have a safe, spirit-filled New Year's celebration. God bless you.